we're in the, the, the oh, I want to I let you guys know something. Uh, last week, you know, many of you gave to uh, um, Hope for African Child. And Joel has now fed uh, five or 1,000 different families. And he started looping back again. Now, you know how that works, though, right? Uh, it, it, one thing leads to another. And so just, just keep Joel and those guys in your prayer. And if the Lord provokes you to give or anything, you know how to do it. You can go back to Hope for African Child and you can put it in there and we can get it to it. The latest thing that's happened is Joel has been contacted by an organization of care centers for people with disabled children or for disabled children. And the issue is not so much the children, although they're at risk of starving as well because of the way the government's handling it. But it's the nurses. They've uh, not been paid for over a month now. They're still expected to come to work. And their families, of course, uh, are, are not you know, wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, their wealth was in the fact that they had this job. So he just asked us to pray. He's not making a specific request. People have come to him. Uh, but but uh, there's a lot going on back there. So we'll be talking about it as a church as well and see if there's anything that we need to do in the interim. But it's going pretty good. And, and yeah, it was pretty spectacular. He was starting out thinking maybe if he could feed 100, 150 families of the poor in those villages we toured when I was there. And then it just kept going and kept going and kept going. So it's really special, really special. And I'm, I'm excited that we have a part in it. There's a lot, a lot of good stuff going on over there. Uh, so Riley, I'm going to be working off the whiteboard a little bit. And you just you can know when the time is. We are looking at uh, the second chunk, I think, of uh, Hebrews in light of the new the new covenant. And just by way of a super quick review, uh, first chapter, Jesus is how God has spoken to us. But that's not a limiting thing. It's an expansive thing because he is the word of prophecy that is more sure that Peter speaks about. He is the one that makes it clear what it is we know about God and and uh, and how to how to see it, how to sense it. Remember, he told his disciples, he said, uh, have I been with you so long and still you don't know that I'm in my Father and He's in me? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, now that layers one bit of clarity that is so far advanced over types, shadows, and all that other stuff. And then the second thing he said, which is really astounding, and it usually gets second, uh, second billing to that thing I just said. He followed that and he said, these words are not my own. They are the Father abiding in me, doing His work. All right, so we're we're a group of people who believe in stuff like prophecy. We believe in in uh, engaging with the Lord and ascensions and trips to heaven and stuff like that. And so, I want us to be more conscious of the fact that when Jesus speaks to us somehow, whether that's in a dream in an ascension, in answer to prayer, or anything. It is the Father abiding in Him, doing His, the Father's work. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that's why, and it kind of links it to what we're looking at tonight, that's why in uh, John chapter 5, when they, they said, what do we have to do to work the works of God? He said, this is the work of God, that you would believe in the one He sent. And so that puts us where we are now in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Chapter 4 finishes with one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, and it's in Hebrews, and it talks about because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, 
uh, and because he's been touched by the feeling of our infirmities, our sicknesses, yet without sin, we should come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and receive grace or acquire grace to help in time of need. And it's just so rich, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to the end of chapter 4, but I can't skip over 3 and the beginning part of 4 because it's about belief and it's about rest. So let me see if I can use my little whiteboard here, and we'll see how this is going to go. All right, so rest, and this is just so you guys can kind of have, and then we have belief, And we have unbelief. Okay, so the Greek word for this, and the only reason I'm going there is I just want, uh, I want us to understand there's linguistic support behind what I'm going to share, okay? And, and what I mean by that is, is that it's not some in, a weird interpretation of this word rest or weird interpretation of belief. So I don't know if I'm going to spell it right because I don't know it's with me. But it's like, uh, this is the Greek. K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-O-N, I think. Kata pausen. Okay? Kata pausen is used uh, only in... Uh, well, it's used in two different places in the New Testament. It's used in Hebrews 3 and 4, talking about this rest. And it's used in Acts, talking about where, uh, where God is quoted saying, um, you know, who will build a house for me? And who is going to make a place for me to rest? So, our word for rest usually means uh, nap time. And, and so we have to work around that. It means sleeping. Now, I like to think that I'm not stuck in that old way of thinking, you know, that I'm pretty sharp. And, but I realized something as I was preparing this and studying all this stuff the last little while. I have been having a hard time sleeping up till about two nights ago. Uh, I've got some neuropathy in my feet. And you know how if you have something that gives you a little bit of pain in the middle of the night, it's all you can feel. So that was, that was what I was dealing with. And I have done everything. I bought a, one of those weighted blankets, which I never thought I'd like because I all my life tried to sleep under nothing if possible. But, uh, man, I really like it. But it's really tough on my feet. So I had it below the blankets. I had it above the blankets. You guys know I have a purple bed, and the purple bed's awesome. So that's not the bed's fault. But uh, I had it below the blanket, above the blanket. Then I would sleep on the blanket, on our, our little down quilt thing, and with it on top of me. And prior to that, I built this little thing to keep the covers off my feet. Um, and so the last two nights, I used the, let's see how to do it. I used the blanket under the quilt. So I used the weighted blanket under the quilt, but short enough on the end of the bed that my feet could stick out under it. And then I put that little thing I built and lifted the upper covers off, and I've had two really good nights sleep. Okay, all of that was probably way too much to be interesting. All of that to say that I realized after the Lord began speaking to me about this that I had done exactly what I criticized us for doing, and that is to import our ideas of something into the Scripture. So for me, rest was about getting sleep. And I wasn't getting it. I mean, one night, the worst night, I only got like three hours, and I was struggling. I got up and, and had a little glass of wine to try to go to sleep. You know, it was just a big mess, the whole thing. Not, not that that was a mess, but it didn't work anyway. But here I was pushing this kind of thing, 
or the, all the associated things like waking up refreshed and having plenty of energy. I pushed that on that word. And then I'm reading Hebrews trying to figure out what it means to enter into rest. All right. Now, worse than that, just me mind, mind juggling it, was we had this magnificent encounter with the Lord during Ascension uh, on Monday, I think it was. Was it Monday that we were doing the rest thing? Oh, right, these ascensions. Guys, honestly, seriously, if you have time to, to jump on an ascension, we're going to do one uh, tonight or a couple of them. I'll, I'm going to take some and Tim and Meg are going to take, take a group. Um, but if you have a time to, to just work your way into that, I know it can feel a little weird. Maybe your first experiences were kind of odd and you, and you didn't feel like you were participating. Just stick with it because here's the deal. Jesus has given us access to the heavenlies, period. We know it because we've known it through prophecy. We know that there's words that jump off the Bible uh, page at us and stuff. So he died. We're in him. He's in us. He's in the Father. We're seated with him in heavenly places, Paul said. There's illustration after illustration where the Lord connected with people. Everybody's heard stories about dreams that were real and it took you someplace you didn't go. So anyhow, we're having these amazing ascensions and the Lord has, has been last like three weeks really transforming basic concepts in my life by showing me what was going on. So Monday, uh, I think you were leading that ascension. We ended up in, uh, in this thing where there was, there was rest like a substance. And I'm not going to do a great job covering the whole thing because it was super spectacular. I didn't know how to do it. But, but it was like the swirling blue stuff with little sparkly things. And that's what freaks people out about, where's that in the Bible? You know, well, it's right here in Hebrews. Enter into rest. That's what it looks like. And so <laughs> it, it was this substance thing. And it was something that we had to receive, had to learn to receive. And the Lord was showing us. And it wasn't that everybody in the, in the ascension didn't do it. But we were needing to receive this. And then we had it to give out. And we began praying. We even prayed for, for, uh, prayed for our governor that, that this rest and, and all the accompanying security and peace would do that. And uh, uh, somebody saw him dancing. I think that was you, Trish. She was dancing in the thing. And uh, it was really cool. Pretty cool. So that was Monday morning. Tuesday was another one of these nights. I mean, Monday night, I didn't, didn't sleep with beans. And uh, the last two nights I have, just so you know that there's a happy ending to the story. But um, so Tuesday, I'm sitting out in my quiet space, which is this, this little motorhome that some friends gave us a long time ago. And I was exhausted. And I just said, you know, so I just revisited that place. And I mean, instantaneously, the Lord took me to the place where we were that on Monday morning. This was Tuesday. And uh, I, I began to understand, okay, you've got this for me. You've got the fruit of rest if I'll take it. And so I just kind of kicked the, the little motorhome seat back a couple of notches. Spent some time with the Lord. And I was getting refreshed. It was very, very cool, very powerful. And then there was somebody that had shot a prayer request to me, and I was releasing it on them. And in the middle of it, the Lord revealed to me, this isn't taking a nap, Larry. This is engaging in something that is a part of me, your father, that is a part of you. And I go, oh my gosh, I have superimposed my own natural interpretation on something that's not talking about it at all. So that allowed me to go back and relook at what I was looking for, look at this word. And it's interesting, the definition of that word is variously uh, 
to settle in. In, at least by the right. Um, to it, it's it's like a form almost of of abiding, but it's it, what it means is it it means like moving into a destination, moving into a place and staying there. Okay, so that's what the idea of settle in. I think that's spelled wrong. S e t t l e. No, that's right. Uh, so, um, take up residence. Well, how in the world do those definitions add up to rest? Well, of course they do. Because the rest we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 3, the rest that the children of Israel did not get to enjoy was entering the land that they were promised. So all of a sudden, the lights start going off. This word means getting to the destination you're going to. Getting to the place and being the people. So in simple terms, with the children of Israel, they came out of Egypt as slaves. And they were supposed to be possessors of the land, right? But it got sidetracked because they entered into unbelief, the Scripture says. What was the unbelief? And we'll get to belief in just a little bit. But so, of course, the idea settle in. The rest that the children of Israel didn't get was the possession of the of the promised land that the Lord had for them. They ended up staying on the other side, and they died in the wilderness. And it was a mess. And it was because they took sides against the word and the revelation of what this place was. Even to the extent, if you remember, they said, well, the land does flow with milk and honey, and it's very rich. But there are walled cities, and there are giants. Now, and they said, we look like grasshoppers in their own sight. And keep in mind, the reason I'm going through this book of Hebrews is I want us to understand the magnificence of the, of the new covenant and what it promises for us. And what it promises is a certain identity, a certain stature, and a certain lifestyle, a certain... Well, the identity is the big thing. And their identity, the children of Israel identity that had them ensnared was they were slaves. They were not possessors of the land. They were not conquerors. But God said he was going to be with them in every step of the way. Yet they rejected him. And that's what this whole story in, in Hebrews 3 is about. It's about the children of Israel. And then it's about us being warned not to do the same thing. Well, what's our promised land? And that's where it starts to get a little bit exciting. Because our promised land is the one that is carved out in this new covenant where God has mercy on our transgressions and he remembers our sin no more, never, no way. It's also the place where all that the law represented, all of the details of righteousness, all of the possibilities of walking like God walks and, and, and being like God is on this earth, all of that law is in our hearts and in our minds. We carry it with us. We're not short of it at all. We're not short just because we don't happen to have a big Bible with it at any given point in time. It's in our hearts. Also, our identity. Here's the identity. You're going to be 
Uh, God's going to be our God by his own declaration. Not, not going to be. He is. And we are his children. We are his people. We are his adults. We are his sons. We are his people. That's the destination. And that was the same destination for the children of Israel. And they couldn't get beyond it because they were slaves. And, and think about it. Remember I told you that Hebrews reaches out to all over the scripture. So it goes way back to that story of them getting out of Egypt and then falling short crossing the Jordan for an entire generation. But it also speaks to Jesus standing there in the very last few days of his life talking to his disciples saying, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Because a, a servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I've told you everything that my father has given me. Why? Because these words I've told you, they're him working on your behalf for you, to you, in me. This is the level of intimacy the New Covenant carries. And it's the same issue, and it requires the same thing. It requires that we believe it. And the thing that undermines it is the unbelief. Okay, so here's the, here's the Greek on this one. Oops. You're black. Uh, pistis. Uh, it's, there's different ways to write it. And this one is... Apistes. It's apistes. A O. Something like that. Apistes. Something. Okay. Close. Anyway. It's A. That's a negation of faith or, depending on the, the verb noun thing, belief. Same thing here. This is either faith. Pistos, the noun, or yeah, the noun part, uh, yeah. or belief. Generally a verb, generally a noun. So what is the characteristic of a verb? It's that it's an action, right? It's something you do. Faith is something uh, that is a noun, so it's something that is talked about or that you have or that you identify or something along those lines. Now, those are pretty clear categories. Generally, the, the Pistis family of words is translated belief when it's a verb. And generally, it's translated faith when it's talked about as a noun. So that's why you can, you know, you have a tendency to say, uh, are you in the faith? That's a noun defining what we believe and why we believe it. But... Here's the relationship between these things. <clears throat> these guys were unable to get to their destination and to stay there because they they negated believing. So what is belief? Now, I had made the same mistake most of my life with belief that I made with rest because I took what I normally thought about it and I imparted it to the word rather than just paying attention to what it really means. All belief is, all belief is, is acting in accordance with what you hear. That's it. We believe all the time. We had a wonderful discussion. It was very uh, complicated. I made it even more so on Tuesday. But, but it, uh, some good stuff came out for me anyway. Helped, it helped. Sonny came up with a, um, he, he jumped into a, a statement about belief, and he says, 
we believe all the time. We are believing. We're designed to believe. We're like believing machines. And it's true. It's true. Every time you pull your credit card out of the wallet and stick it in that machine, there's a whole bunch of people believing. Or you wouldn't do it. You'd be sitting there nervous going, how am I going to get this uh, bag of goodies out of this store without really giving them money? It's because you believe that you don't feel that way. Right? You see what I'm saying? We believe all the time. We believe. We believe. Yeah, but you guys believe like crazy. A bunch of people didn't believe, but a bunch of them did. You believe, <laughs> you believe tonight, they're going to keep me safe from COVID if they can. We believe that. The car will get me here. That's right. Yeah. Where I'm going is the same place it used to be. That might not be true all the time. <laughs> uh, belief. It, we're built to believe. But what we've done is, is because we found the words in the Bible, we've made it uh, a religious experience, an abstract religious experience, even to the point that uh, someone can ask you, what do you believe? And you could, for many people, satisfy that question by giving them a list of things none of which has anything to do with belief. Because you've turned them into a noun, and you've wrote them on a piece of paper, written them, written them on a piece of paper. Belief was Peter stepping out of the boat when Jesus said, come. Belief is simply doing what's next. Belief would have been acknowledging that there were giants, and saying, like, I think it was Joshua that said, we surely have to go up because our God is going to deliver us or deliver them to us. They will be prey in our hands. And he wasn't talking this kind. He was talking like hunting them down like dogs because they are what it doesn't matter. You see what I'm saying? All belief was, was what Joshua and Caleb were prepared to do. And it, it, co it colored their eyes. Unbelief was what you're not prepared to do. What I'm not prepared to do when God reveals himself and speaks. And, and the simpler we can make this issue and the less that we entrap it in our tendency. You guys remember the, the scene in the shack in the book or the movie where I think it was the Holy Spirit, Sarah, he was uh, responding to Mac. And, uh, and she said, you make nouns out of everything. We like to live in verbs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ronnie just pointed out that the example that was used in, this, in the story was uh, you make this thing a responsibility and you turn it into a noun and then it becomes abstract and it becomes defining and it becomes oppressive. But we just live in the ability to respond. Good enough. Belief is not a list of what you think is accurate and correct about God. Belief is going, pardon me, Papa? Oh, okay. That's what belief is. That's it. And faith is the condition that could be used to describe a person who listens and does that. It's not a category. It's, it's not a bunch of other stuff. So here's the deal. So let me, let's, let's look in here just for a second. Because Hebrews 3 is a little bit of a rough, a rough chapter for me because it, uh, you know, the Lord, we're dealing with a situation where the Lord, uh, was upset. And 
I remember when, when I was first being turned around years and years ago. I'm glad you guys are here, Doug, because you probably remember this. I was just, you know, really so focused on how good God was and that God was always good and all this kind of stuff. And then I got to, as we were coming through Genesis, I got to the children of Israel in, in Exodus, to the children of Israel um, not going into the promised land. And while I was studying, I was kept trying to shoehorn God being really happy all the time into this. And he said, Larry, you have to let me be angry at these people. I said, I was for a full generation. I go, okay. He said, but look how I treated them. I fed them. I clothed them. Clothes didn't wear out. Protected them from their enemies, all this kind of stuff. So it was a big learning lesson for me. So anyway, let me read just through this a little bit. I'm going to start. Uh, the first part of, of Hebrews chapter 3 is just a reassertion that Jesus is more than you had in the past. He's more than the prophetic words. He's more than Moses. He's, he's unique by himself like that. And um, then in verse 7 it says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Get that. That's amazing. They saw his works for 40 years. Now, most of us Pentecostal charismatic types would be thrilled to see the works of the Lord going on on a daily basis like they did. But that wasn't the good, that wasn't the good end of the deal here. They saw those works because of the grace and mercy of God when they rejected what he was offering. And that's what we don't want to do. So here we go. Uh, where your fathers tried me by testing and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. Keep that in mind. They always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, now I got to tell you something I'm studying on there. I was reading the Mirror Bible, and uh, Francois de Troy challenged the quote from Psalms uh, 9511. And I thought, no way, because I just went through translation after translation, and all of them said, in my wrath, I swore they will never enter my rest. He was saying the verb structure should be read that, uh, that in, in my anguish, it all means the same thing, wrath, orgy, you know, passion, flaring nostrils. In my passion... Oh, that you would enter my rest. I go, okay, I don't know. Sure enough, I dug as deep as I could dig in the original language, and that's the primary meaning of the word. But we've translated negatively the whole time. I can't say it. I mean, I did say it, obviously. But I, I, I can't say with 100% certainty, because I just lack the linguistic skill, that that is that way. But it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. It's a, it's a plea. And then... You can always tell things are weird when you read a lexicon, especially about Hebrew words, because it'll have the basic meanings. And the basic meaning of all this was to move on, to move in, to go in, to do this, to do that. And then in the end, uh, it says, uh, and translated, uh, not, not go in. <laughs> okay. So anyhow, that's just a little free thing. Um, I swore my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil and believing heart fall, that falls away from the living God. Okay, falls away sounds passive, like we've fallen and we can't get up. That is totally not what that word means. What that word means is you have deliberately decided to reject whatever you're doing. You're turning away deliberately and choicefully. 
So it's not like some accident that happened on the River Jordan. Okay. Um, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called the day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Okay, so let's not paint a, a, an overly ugly picture of it. Let's just let it say what it says. But the concluding statement at the end of chapter 3 is that they were not able to get to the destination that God had rescued them for, but even before that, that he had created them for. Because it was the loss of their identity as sons of God that got them in Egypt in the first place. And so it was their unbelief in the promise, in their identity, in who God said they were, that prevented them from getting to the destination. So the rest that we're being provoked to enter, and, and we're going to just get in the first part of chapter 4 in a little bit, the rest that we're being provoked to enter is the rest of our identity. Our identity being aligned with who God says we are. Our identity being aligned with who Jesus died to reveal in us and who he does in fact reveal just by simply being the incarnate one and living. So that's where we're at. The rest is not me getting a good night's sleep. The rest is not some form of passivity. The rest is not some form of... The rest is ending up where you're supposed to be. Now, think about it. You guys drove from California to here, and when did you enter rest? When you got here. Then you had to come up with a whole other thing to be. But for that trip, the rest was here. That's the way it is on a vacation. Or think about... Uh, Think about what happens when that, when that happens. All of a sudden, now you start unpacking. So you take a vacation or put yourself in a position in a Conestoga wagon with somebody crossing the United States, you know, Mormon Trail thing, settling down, finally seeing the ocean or whatever. All of a sudden, your purpose begins to be revealed, but the very first part of it is just simply being there. And it's just simply starting to unpack the wagon or unpack the vacation or unpack the car, unpack the suitcase. Rest is not passive. Rest is the culmination of getting where you're going, reaching your destiny, and assuming your identity. And that's what's at stake with unbelief. Now, it's no wonder that people in, in Western Christianity don't get this. I didn't get it for a long time. Why? Because we're inundated with the, the assumed fact that our destination is heaven. No. Our destination is sonship. Our destination is to be like Jesus, to be conformed to his image. Heaven is kind of irrelevant, frankly. I mean... It just happens to be where God is, which makes it cool. 
But that's one reason why the actual, uh, the actual realities of heaven that are spoken of in the book of Revelation and, and, and them being, there being a new heaven, right? And a new earth and a city coming down from heaven and God being in the midst of the cities. God's not going to be living in the heaven we imagine then. He's going to be in that, in the midst of the bride. He's going to be there, his throne and the throne of Jesus. They're going to be the light of that city, the new Jerusalem. And you don't get a lot of people teaching about that because they're terrified to give up their destination, which is heaven. But it's not your destination. Sonship, intimacy, priests and kings, that's our destiny. And that's what these guys turn their back on. And the reason they turn their back on is they began to look at themselves and see themselves like grasshoppers in comparison to the things around them, to the challenges of the giants and the walls. So what the new covenant is is doing, okay, and so why? Why did they feel that way? Was it just that they were a bunch of chickens? No, I don't think so. <laughs> they were grasshoppers, yeah. And chickens eat grasshoppers, so that was worse yet. Uh, no, I think it was. I think it was that they had not come to grips with why they were set free from Egypt in the first place. They didn't consider that that was the big deliverance. You're going from slaves to sons, to warriors, to possessors of the land. And this is what we got to understand. This is what the New Covenant is about. The New Covenant is this amazing, nearly instantaneous leap into sonship. Now, it's, it, it's, it's, that's described as entering our destination and engaging rest. Let me tell you another thing to make that not that. That makes rest not nap time. The rest that's being talked about here is the rest that, that God entered into on the seventh day. He wasn't tired and took a nap. He was where he wanted to be, and he had things where he wanted them to be. That's rest. That's what we're being called to enter into. Chapter 4, let me read a little bit because it goes on and, and further defines this. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering His rest, His rest, not, a, 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 not something about us, but His rest, any one of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have heard good news preached to us just as they also. Now, they use good news in the American Standard. The word is euangelimisio, uh, or euangelimisio, I think is the word. Anyway, it means the gospel is what it means. It's, way, it's what it's talked about every time it's used everywhere else. So the children of Israel on the east side of Jordan had the gospel preached to them just like we did, says the writer of Hebrews. Huh? But no, isn't the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and you have to accept him so that he can forgive you? And you know, Again, we're enmeshed in a culture that thinks that's the gospel. No, the gospel is you are sons of the living God and a foreshadow of Jesus brought you out of Egypt to this place. 
and you have despised the revelation of who you are that he was. Jesus is more than Moses about that revelation. And we have dumbed the gospel down to just getting our ticket punched based on the work that he did on the cross rather than understanding that he is who we are. Now, he's always going to be the eternal son of God and we're never going to be the eternal son of God, the word of the father. But the difference between us is so much less than we think because he is in us and we are in him. And we have been in the heart of the Father, destined, what does it say? To be conformed in Ephesians to the image of his Son in love since before the foundation of the world. Our gospel is like their view of going to the promised land. They didn't understand that this was going to establish a destiny and a legacy and an identity for them. They could see that it was it's cool to eat those big grapes and that the land flowed with milk and honey, but was it really worth it? And they opted to say no. Remember when they said, at least we had leeks <laughs> in Egypt. So theirs, theirs was just a commodity comparison. It wasn't an identity comparison. And our, our, our perverse form of the gospel, our dramatically diminished form of the gospel in the Western church is also a perverse commodity comparison. You either go to heaven or you roast in hell forever. Should be an easy choice, but it, but it, doesn't, it doesn't give you anything to believe in spite of the way it's put out. Sure, it looks like it's a good idea to go to heaven, but uh, I haven't got married yet. Or I haven't got my business running right. Or we haven't had children yet. Or, or, or. It's a commodity comparison. And that's what they did. And that led to unbelief. That led to God being angry with them but patiently taking care of them their whole life. So I don't know exactly where to go from that, but do you understand what I'm saying? This is a big deal. This is a, a really big deal. If we sell short our destination, we will make false comparisons and end up in unbelief. And, uh, and then we just, in that unbelief, we build a whole system. And in that 40 years, as hard as this is to hear, Part of what got built there was whininess, remember? You know, it was a, a kind of a fear-based culture, and it was also the institution of a substitute for the relationship that God really wanted to have with them. Because he didn't give up on them. But he, the whole thing was rendered back into a mediatorial law kind of situation, which is why the earlier comparisons... And why, as we move forward in Hebrews 9 and 10, you're going to see that, kind of like what Paul said, what the law could not do through sinful flesh, God did by sending his son. There in Hebrews 8. I mean, uh, Romans 8. Okay, let me keep reading a little bit. Uh, 
for uh, indeed we have had the good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard or believe. For we who have believed enter that rest, that rest which is His rest, that rest which is okay. You're right. This really is done. Jesus said it is finished. Had a uh, interesting um, thing from from uh, Jeremy. And he was posting something about, so what's the depth, what's the entirety of what Jesus said, it is finished? And I posted back and I said, well, we would have to ask what it was to know that. And that's really what we're on a journey doing. Lord, what is it? What is it that you did on the cross? What is it that, that uh, you've accomplished? What is it that was finished? Now, keep in mind... That rest being entered into is a form of something being finished. But the first thing you do once you enter into rest is you begin to unpack the tools of the trade in your new identity. If, if your Hawaii vacation is the destination, you haven't finished the vacation. You've just started it. You unpack it, pull out the swimsuits, pull out the snorkels, pull out the fishing gear. And all of a sudden now, your task in rest is to learn how to be a good Hawaii vacationer. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Your task as a son is not over. It's just the start. And so we begin to unpack these things as we move forward. That's where we get it wrong. That's where we get it wrong. So this whole part that's designed to be us growing and being and exploring who we are as sons of God in the new covenant gets substituted for figuring out a way to not be bored and not slip back into sin while we're waiting to get to the proposed destination, which we've substituted heaven for sonship. And we still are sons. But the unbelief keeps us out of it. Make sense? Okay. All right. A couple more verses and then we'll be done. I thought I was going to preach short. I didn't, didn't have notes. That's probably why. Uh, so this is where it compares it with God's rest. It says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is in verse uh, 3 and 4. <clears throat> and although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them and failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after such a long time, just as had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay, now if we jump ahead from the, the bad stuff that happened on the east side of Jordan, the very next verse takes us to Joshua, who did in fact lead them into that promised destination. But for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Not a rest of passivity, a rest of identity. Okay, we're here. We're sons. What do we do? And that's where it begins. And that is what the new covenant is. It's the culture because it's the culture where his law is now in us. We carry it with us everywhere, every day. It's where our identity is summed up in these words. 
I will be their God and they will be my people. It is the, the reality, the place of reality brought forth by Jesus Christ under the purpose of the Father where he can say, no one will need to tell his neighbor or his brother, know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest. The reason that is so incredibly foreign sounding to us is because we still think rest is out there in the future. But once we stand as sons and begin to believe and engage in various ways through the scripture, through prayer, through ascensions, through prophecy, and, and literally engage, when the Lord says, go give that person five bucks and you do it, or pray this or go do this, it's, it's just simply the taking action on the basis of what you hear. And it is also the place where you're free to do that and totally screw the thing up. Because I will have mercy on your transgressions and your sins. Oh yeah, I will never, no way, remember those and identify you by them. This is the only game in town that allows us to start to unpack after our arrival at our destination and our identity and become to, and begin to grow as sons and daughters of God. And that's why Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. Call you friends. Sonship's the issue. The new covenant's the only place you can live it out. That's why it's so critically important to understand. Amen? Okay. Well, Father... Thank you. Um, I mean, how ridiculous is it to say thank you for the new covenant? Thank you for getting us to this place of rest. And thank you that it is the most active, exciting, potential-filled, explosive discovery session lifestyle that could possibly exist. And that is the nature of this covenant. So, Lord, I thank you, and I pray that as we work our way through the next few chapters, that we'll more and more and more begin to understand that. And I thank you that we can do so confidently because it's what Jesus wants. Amen.